Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. If you are there and uh, you're wherever you are, if there's a mom around you, let's clap and say, we love you moms. Thank you for putting up with us and caring for us and loving us. And um, it's kind of strange to celebrate Mother's Day this way, but nonetheless, we can show our gratitude. So the chat's on this morning. If you're able, you can uh, wish everybody good morning and a happy Mother's Day. That'd be nice so they could hear from you and know that you're there. It just kind of makes us feel a little bit more together in this uh, strange and trying time. But we're going to look at James chapter 2, and I'm excited about uh, God's word this morning and where he has us. And so what I want to do is start with a word of prayer. So if you will, as we've been doing the last couple of weeks, uh, somebody where you are, pray out loud and then I'll pray and close us out. So let's have a word of prayer together. So you pray. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for the blessing of your son Jesus, the presence of your spirit within us, for your plan and your purpose to redeem us. Thank you for your word and for your guidance and for your love and care through it. God, thank you for our faith family and for your undying love for us and your unwillingness to let us drift, but to continually speak to us, to keep us on the path that we need to be on. Lord, this morning we're grateful as we celebrate Mother's Day. Thank you for our moms. I pray for those this morning who miss their mom, and their mom is is gone. But, Lord, as they think about the presence that their mom had in their life, God, I pray that their heart's filled with gratitude and joy and lord i pray that you would comfort them as only you can lord thank you for the moms that are sitting with their families this morning and i'm just grateful for them and grateful for their love and their care and their devotion thank you for the provision that you saw fit to give us and a mom and our need it's a reminder of our dependency that from a very young age we we need people to care for us and love us and show us the right way and direct us because we're unable to do that on our own. And, Lord, it's a picture of what we forever are in this life and on this earth. And so, Lord, thank you for the moms that you have given us, Lord, and we are grateful and thankful. Today, as we gather around your word, I pray, Father, that you will bind us together by the blood of your son, Jesus, that you'll speak clearly to us that you'll encourage us, that you'll fill us with the wisdom that we need to make the decisions and to take action in the places of our life where we need to do so. And Lord, we thank you above all things for Jesus. We pray that we'd be mindful of all that he's done and the purpose and reason behind the things that he's done in order to establish us as his people, that we might walk in wisdom and in accordance with your will and purpose for us. 
So this morning is your time. We pray that you would do with it as you see fit. Take control of my mouth. I pray you give us ears to hear and hearts willing to receive for your honor, glory, and praise alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, amen. You know, I've talked about before how one of the things that um, me and my kids love to do is put puzzles together. And that wasn't something that I always enjoyed doing. In fact, uh, really, before Kaylee and Cameron, I really didn't enjoy puzzles at all. Something that uh, I would enjoy doing would not be taking a whole bunch of, you know, little shaped cardboard and trying to figure out how to put them all together to make something work. And I still wouldn't enjoy doing that if I weren't doing it with people that I love. But I do enjoy doing it with them. And one of the things that happens when we put puzzles together is that, you know, we'll start putting a puzzle together. And and as the puzzle, you know, Cameron is very good at putting puzzles together. And as we start getting the puzzle together, when it's almost finished, Kaylee will get up and get another puzzle and come back before right as we finish this one, then she'll dump another one out. So, you know, that's her way of saying, no, we're going to keep doing this, Dad. And so one day we're up the upstairs in her room putting puzzles together and we finish putting a puzzle together and then she comes over there and she dumps some pieces out. Now, what's the first thing that you do when you start to put a puzzle together? What's the very first thing that you do? Some of you are thinking, well, you start putting the edges together or you start separating the pieces according to colors. Well, those are things you do early on, but that's not the first thing. The first thing that you do is you look at the picture on the box so that you know what you're putting together. The problem is Kaylee comes over and dumps all these pieces out and of a Ziploc bag. And so I'm looking at this pile of pieces thinking, how can we put a puzzle together when we don't even know what it is? I don't even know what the picture is. I mean, it seems almost impossible to put something together when you have no idea what it is well without a picture it's hard to know how to put the pieces together well in the scripture what God's done is given us a picture so that in our lives together as individuals and corporately as a church we would know as we're putting the pieces of our lives together we're putting the pieces of the church together we would know what it would look like because he's given us the picture on the box in the word of God. And so if God's heartbeat is for his church, which it clearly is as we look at scripture, then what we see is this picture. And this morning, God's going to give us a picture of what the church is to look like. Look in James chapter two, get your Bibles out. James chapter two, we're going to begin in verse one. Verse one of James two says this. James, the brother of Jesus, he says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Now, let's just pause here for a minute. Now, if you've downloaded your listening guide, then you know, uh, as we get to these blanks, some Christians have a higher standard than God. Now, think of how crazy this is. Some Christians have a higher standard than God. Now, what is James saying when he says, Do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality? 
partiality or favoritism if you're reading from the ESV. Well, first of all, let me just give you some background to James's connection to this issue of favoritism or partiality. Remember when we were studying through the book of Acts, we got to Acts chapter 15, which tells of the Jerusalem Council. And at the Jerusalem Council, there was a big controversy over who could come into the church and who couldn't come into the church. Who was the church going to allow in? And if you remember, as all the apostles and the elders convened in Jerusalem, the person who was over that very first council meeting was none other than James, the person who had the weightiest voice. It was not Peter. It was not Paul, but it was James. And probably it had a lot to do with the fact that, A, he was the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, but also that he's the brother of Jesus. And so that sort of carried some weight. And I'm going to remind you what the Scripture says. Acts 15, verse 1 The Bible says some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. So here this controversy starts about who can and cannot be saved. Now imagine this, that there's a teaching in the church among the people of God that certain people can't be saved. Now this would make perfect sense if we were in the Old Testament, but we're not in the Old Testament. This is post-Pentecost. This is post-resurrected Jesus. And so James comes along and he says, Therefore, it is my judgment that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. In other words, it's an amazing passage where James lays out, Listen, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that God made a way through the Lord Jesus for anyone who would come and repent to be saved. And we shouldn't trouble those from the outside. We shouldn't put a higher standard than God has. You see, this word partiality that James is talking about, or favoritism, it's a the Greek word. It means receiving the face. So what it means is to judge a book by its cover. That we should not judge a book by its cover. We shouldn't, we shouldn't come to conclusions about people based on external things. You know, all of us are guilty of this, no matter whether we're willing to admit it or not. I mean, it's just true. I'm going to gravitate towards certain people, and I'm going to maybe move away from other types of people, uh, if I'm not conscious of this, if I just let things take their natural course, I'm going to be guilty of this. So I have to intentionally force myself to be aware and to not be this way. And, you know, when you think about the, the types of people that you may gravitate towards or maybe the types of people that you might push away from, You know, there's reasons for that. I'm not really sure what they are. Maybe it was the way you were brought up or maybe it was something that happened to you in your childhood or whatever the case may be. You know, I I, uh, for a long time growing up, I mean, I had a real problem with bald people. I didn't like bald people. I didn't want them around me. I was never friends with bald people. And now look at me. So 
you just don't know the you see the humor of God is he might fill your life with the very people that you early on were you know trying to reject or stay away from so let me ask you a couple questions okay true or false true or false everyone is equally made in the image of God true or false everyone is equally made in the image of God well that's true that every person is made in the image of God and equally. What about this? All people are equally sinful. Don't you have this sort of thing inside of you somewhere that believes that there are people that are worse than you? Where does that come from? Like on what criteria do, doesn't the Bible say for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God? Yes. What about this? True or false? Those who belong to Jesus are equally saved, loved, and forgiven. Equal. There's not tiers of salvation. There's not levels of salvation. There's not, there's not people, as we saw last week, I said last week, that God doesn't have any stepchildren in His family, that He has beloved sons and daughters, and He loves them all equally. And yet, we tend to believe that we're not as bad as some people, and that maybe some people are more sanctified or more, you know, they're, they're closer to God or God loves them more because of maybe the way they live or their giftedness or the way God uses them or whatever the case may be. But none of that is true. And that we need to intentionally be reminded that all people, regardless of where you come from or what you look like, are made in the image of God. We tend to think that we represent the image of God more clearly than other people, but that's not true. All people, all people. So why is James making a big deal of this, and why are we going to talk about this this morning? Well, it's very simple, because when it comes to the church, the inside determines the outside. In other words, what I mean by this is the way the church operates within itself will determine the impact it's going to have externally on the outside. You see, the way the Bible teaches from start to finish that a church, you can predict the way a church is going to function according to the things God's called it to. Its effectiveness externally is going to be determined by its obedience internally you see notice james addresses this to his brethren to his brothers and sisters to believers to people who have been reborn people who are in the family of god this is addressed to them he's saying brethren don't be partial don't be guilty of partiality he's saying you Sons and daughters, you've been totally forgiven and accepted by God. In spite of all of your failures, all of your past, don't turn around and then reject other people. Don't, don't develop some class system in your heart that, that says, well, people that commit certain sins are worse than people that commit other sins. No. And think about this. What if God accepted us the way we accept others? Wouldn't that be lovely? Wouldn't that be comfortable? 
Thank goodness God doesn't accept people based on their IQ. God doesn't accept people based on their earnings potential. He doesn't accept people based on their ethnic background. He doesn't accept people based on... Think of how God accepts people. For God so loved the whole world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever... Look at how, how broad God's invitation is. And yet, human nature is to narrow that down. What is it about insiders that want to push away outsiders? What is it about that? What makes us protective of things that, that we're a part of and that even don't belong to us, yet we don't want to share them. Or it's a very strange trait of the human fallen heart that we have. You know, God could have done it any way He wanted to do it. He had every right to be selective if He'd have wanted to. He could have, he could have only chosen a certain group of people, and we couldn't have said that's wrong or unfair, because if no one deserves it, well, then no one deserves it. But God didn't do that. He opened up salvation to all people. And He set the example for us. And over and over, the Bible tells us that there's no partiality in God. And so there shouldn't be any partiality in us. Now look at verse 2. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man with filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and you say to him, You sit here in the good place, and you say to the poor man, You stand here, or you sit here at my footstool. Have you not, verse 4, shown partiality among yourselves? Notice, among yourselves, talking about internally, and become judges with evil thoughts. So here's what we have. We have a clear picture of what God values. You know, I, I often think to myself, well, if, if Jesus were here, who would, he, who would he pay special attention to? Who would he? Now, think about what James just said. James just sort of gave us a, a, a test pattern. He said, now, let's suppose a rich man, a poor man come in. Where are you going to sit one? Where are you going to sit the other? And then you, you ask the question, now, if Jesus comes in, Who's he going to pay attention to? And I think a lot of people think that the Sunday school answer to this question is, oh, well, Jesus is going to be equally attentive to all people. Well, that's not true. That's not true. Jesus isn't going to be equally attentive to all people because when Jesus came to this earth, he wasn't equally attentive to all people. He invited all people, but think about it. He, who did he spend his time with? The rejects, the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the thieves, the criminals. He spent his time with the people who were open to him, who had a desire to be with him. And the people who, the religious people who thought they had everything worked out, who were more concerned about keeping the outsiders out of the inside. Jesus didn't spend much time with them. You see... The goal for you and me is really that God's values would be our values. That I think it's very 
telling to me that we're having this conversation at this point in time. Because I always talk about how the providence of God is so obvious in where we are in Scripture and what's going on around us. And really one of the most effective and impactful ways that I've been able to utilize this time during this uh, pandemic has been to really be able to look at the church. And I mean the church, this church, through the eyes of the outsider to just take a pause. You see, because when you're in the throes of just, you know, life going, then not intentionally, but maybe just because we're busy in life, we don't stop and take a minute and think, well, what's it like to come and and visit Michael? What's it like to show up here and not know where to take your kids or not know where the bathrooms are, not know where to sit or not know what's going to happen in service or when to stand up or when to sit down or, you know, what it's like if you don't, you know, never, you don't know the words to a song or you don't, you know, you can't find the book of James. Well, what does it feel like? And so, you know, just little things that really we've had time to, to stop and to, to think about. Look at verse 5. Listen, my, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? You see, God did not equally spend time or equally invest. No, Jesus says that He's come for the sick and the people who have no need of a doctor, who have no need, they're, they're fine. Well, those aren't the people. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. Those who, but there's a lot of people who, who don't need God. They're not, they're not looking for God. They don't sense that they, uh, they're fine on their own. And God's not going to force His way on them. You know, and it says that here in verse 5, has God not chosen the poor of this world? I mean, doesn't it say in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, uh, blessed be the poor in spirit? Isn't that what Jesus said? Now, why? Why is this? Why does God say He's chosen the poor? Well, it, it's, it's positional. Think about this. It's difficult to maintain faith in a good God when life is not good. In other words, it's what we talked about last week with orphans and widows. The heart of God is drawn to trouble. God draws to those who who have a broken spirit and He resists the prideful. He resists those who are self-sufficient and good. And so He's chosen the poor. He's chosen those who are willing to... Now, everyone's poor, but it's those who will admit that they're poor, those who will admit that they have need. You see, God won't save you unless you desire salvation, unless you come to Him for salvation. Verse 6, But you've dishonored the poor man, James says. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? Do they not blaspheme the noble name by which you are called? Now, James is sort of 
laying out this principle for us that, you know, if you value the wrong things, you're going to honor the wrong people. And so what happens here is he's just pointing out that what what's happening in this instance that he's giving an example of is that the church would give precedent to the rich, even though the rich were oftentimes uh, causing problems to the furtherance of the gospel, that the very people that were being a hindrance to the mission of the church, the church would still honor because of what they could receive in return because they because they needed uh, money or they wanted prestige or power or the people within the church wanted acceptance by these particular people or whatever the case may be. But listen, it's it's so much more than this. It's it's not just an issue of rich and poor. I mean, yes, you you have rich people who. Uh, have a have a belief that poor people are lazy and that if they worked hard they wouldn't be poor and then you have poor people for example who i've heard i've heard people say they that they've uh pulled up in the parking lot of mike memorial and then they see all those nice cars and they feel like i can't go to church here because they're showing partiality towards rich people i mean why would you say that some people don't like overweight people. Some overweight people really don't like skinny people. Some people don't like divorced people. Some people show partiality. They have thoughts they shouldn't think, evil thoughts in their mind towards single moms. Some people don't like homeschoolers. Some homeschoolers have an attitude towards public schoolers. Where does that come from? Some people don't like people with bad taste. You believe that? Now, think about what you got to believe about yourself to not like people with bad taste. In other words, who made you the taste executive? In other words, you know, some people don't like people who maybe don't know how to dress or match their clothes or... But who says the way you do it is right? 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 But you, you see somebody and they're dressed in a shabby way and then what, what do you, what does that cause you to think about in your mind? You know, some people don't like stay-at-home moms. They think that they need to get out there and get a job. Then some stay-at-home moms have an attitude towards working moms and they think, well, if you really loved your kids, you'd be at home with your kids. I mean, Everybody has an opinion about everything else. Everybody has a, has a natural tendency towards everything else. And we have to be careful. If we're not intentional, we'll fall into this trap. I can remember uh, Pastor Rod talking about how, you know, when, when they go places, how people would uh, look down on them like, how many kids do you have? Like, you know, and, and they would, you know, make statements like, why would you have so many kids? And then there's other people that have a lot of kids that if they see somebody with one or two kids, they think, well, that's because they're selfish. Everyone has an opinion about something. 
And here's the danger. The danger for us is that what we think impacts what we say and what we do. You see, these inclinations that we have, these little internal ways of showing partiality determine what we say and what's even more scary is even what we do. Now imagine all of this from God's perspective. You see, because what the heart of God is, He wants the church to look like His heart. He wants His family to to hold His values just like I want my family to hold my values. And it grieves my heart if someone in my family doesn't hold my values, just like God. God wants the church to, to be a representative of His values. And so He's watching and he's thinking to himself as he's seeing all of these things going on in the church and he's thinking now let me get this straight you were a total destitute lawbreaker you were doomed to an eternity in hell you blasphemed my name you had amassed a debt that in billions of years you couldn't work your way out of And I forgave you. I wiped the slate clean for you. In fact, even after I wiped the slate clean for you, you continue to sin. You continue to fail. You continue to do things fully knowing that they're wrong, but you do them anyway, and I continue to forgive you. And in light of all of that, you're coming into my family And you're coming to these conclusions. You're showing partiality towards other children in my family. Like, no, that's unacceptable. That's not going to work. We can't do that. We can't impose something that God hasn't imposed. That's not the way he wants his family to look. And so when we think about our mission, especially just, you know, where we are as a family and and as we look forward with such anticipation and excitement to the future, having gotten this amazing opportunity to stop and take a breath and sort of refocus and realign things and then launch back into, you know, full speed ahead. When you think about all that and you think about the message of the gospel. And you realize that what the gospel is, is it's the story of the incredible lengths God has gone to in order to make us one. I mean, that's what the story is. The story is not just about what the gospel does to me individually and to you individually. It's more than that. When we share the gospel with someone, it's not just the fact that by the gospel, their sin can be forgiven and that they can uh, walk in peace and with God and know that they're eternally secure with God. It's more than that. It's that they're, they're reborn into something. It's not just deliverance from something, but it's being reborn into something, into a new family, into a, new, into a whole new sort of set of values, into a whole new 
culture, a culture where there's no partiality, where there's no favoritism, a culture where we don't, where, where all of our fallen partiality must die. All of our sort of embedded biases are not allowed. The Father is not pleased with this. And so what's the solution? James, in his, he's so practical. He gives us his solution. And here's the good news about the solution. You know what the good news is? Thanks be to God. The solution is not a command that says, Now, you need to start liking all the people you don't like. Because if that was the solution, we'd have a big problem. Because that, that's not easy to do. How do we do that? And would we be successful at that? No, here's the solution, the gospel solution. Look at verse 8. Verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here's what James is saying. When you run into somebody that you would generally dislike or try to avoid, you love that person the way you would want your neighbor to love you. That instead of seeing through your own lens, instead of sort of, uh, you know, when I was a, a kid, I, I loved to read comic books and I still have a big, you know, giant box filled with all my comic books. And although I've read them all a hundred times, what's hilarious is when you look in the back of my old comic books at all those things that I remember as a little boy I was so amazed by. And one of them is, is that in the back of all my comic books, if you send a dollar, one dollar and 25 cents shipping and handling, you can get your very own authentic, genuine, realistic, scientifically proven pair of x-ray vision glasses. Now, when I was a kid, man, I wanted some of those x-ray vision glasses. I thought, how cool would that be to have x-ray vision glasses? But you know, it's like what we do is we put on our x-ray vision glasses. And when we see people, so we determine what they are. It's like, oh, well, I can, I can see that you're this way or that way based on this about you or that about you. And it's all our own sort of, you know, it's our own scientific method that we've developed over our, the years of our life that through the culture we were raised in and through the things that we experienced growing up and throughout our life, we've developed this system this grid that if the truth be known every single one of us we put on our x-ray x-ray glasses and what we do is we have developed our own method of profiling every person that we meet and every person that we see but that's not the solution what god says is what we need to do is love our neighbor as ourselves. So here's a practical way for you to understand this. Whenever you see someone different from you, see yourself. 
You see, if, if when I meet somebody that maybe doesn't look the way I look or doesn't think the way I think or whatever the case may be, if I see myself, if I realize that they're equal image bearer as I am, that they're equally loved by God as I am, if I see myself, if I realize, wait a second, let me change the way I'm, I'm looking at this. And this is what we need to be as a faith family. We need to be a group of people who intentionally and relentlessly rid ourselves of partiality because it's, a, it's an affront to the heart of God. You see, remember how all of this is fitting together. And so the very end of chapter 1 talked about, ended with the famous passage of Scripture, James one twenty seven: pure and undefiled religion is to love orphans and widows in their trouble, to go to them in their trouble. Listen, we will not move as a faith family with the heart of God. We won't move into trouble unless we see with the eyes of God. You know what we'll do? We'll take the easy way. We'll move into the little troubles, the, the troubles we can solve. We'll, we'll move into the situations that we, we feel comfortable with, the things that we've dealt with before that make sense to us, that we, but we'll avoid the things that make us uncomfortable. Or that, but what are the real troubles? The world is filled with people who are in real trouble, who need real Christians to bring them the real message of the gospel. But in order to do that, we have to rid ourselves of of partiality, first and foremost, amongst ourselves. Because remember, the inside predicates the outside. And so if we show partiality to one another, we're going to show partiality to the world around us. And so we can't do that. Whenever we see someone different from ourselves, we need to see ourselves. Now, how do you how do you know that a local church is healthy? Let's just suppose that you were looking for a good church to go to. How would you know that? How would you know? How would you know if if you were Adam and Rachel and you had just, you know, gotten orders to uh relocate and so you go to a new area and you have to find a new church and i'm sure they're watching this morning we love you and we miss you but we we want to we want to imagine that we're you and we have to find a a good church how do we find a good church what what signifies that a church is healthy well according to scripture i mean there's a lot of little things but what what would i look for first and foremost well, according to the gospel, I would look for a church that loves each other well. Because if, you see, by the way you love each other, the church will know that indeed you are my disciples. So if I'm looking for a church, what I want to find is a church that's making real disciples, that's got real Christians in it. And what does the Bible say is the, is the external evidence of internal correctness? Loving each other. Loving each other. You see, if you find a church that loves each other, then when you go there, they'll love you. 
But if the church is showing partiality to one another in the church, then the only hope you have is you better fit into the mold of what they're looking for when you go there because that's the only way you're going to be accepted. You see? We got to put on gospel glasses. We got to take off our little $1.25 x-ray vision glasses. And we need to put on the real glasses, the gospel glasses. And we need to see clearly what it is that God's calling us to see. You know, I, I don't, what I'm about to say, I don't want you to think, I'm, I don't say this lightly. But truthfully, in my heart, and boy, there have been some truly amazing seasons that we've seen here at, at Michael. I mean, over the 25 years that I've been here, I mean, I've seen God do some, there's been some incredible works of God when the Holy Spirit swept through us 10 years ago and gave us this heart for global missions and, and we just gave ourselves to, to I send and, and to the, the, the mission of the gospel going globally and, and how still 10 years later that fire burns so hot and and i think about all that god's accomplished through that and and how generous uh, you are and we are together towards the global mission and faithful to not pay other people to do what god's called us to do ourselves and that's been amazing and what about when god's heart swept through us and and turned us to foster care and how god just did a work amongst us that is is just still leaves you almost breathless when you when you think about it it's just been amazing and i feel like we're at another moment like that right now i sense this anticipation in my heart right now that god is really up to something very special you know after the message Wednesday night that me and the other pastors uh, shared about our vision for the future and where God's leading us. You know, what really amazes me is that, you know, the I hear from the ministry leaders that Becca text me and she's so excited that night and she says that you know her phone is just blowing up with people who are saying listen I'm on board where do you need me I want to serve you know I realize that in order for us to uh, accomplish what God's called us to accomplish on Sunday mornings we all have to be uh, serving all hands on deck and so people are it's not her calling people it's not Siobhan calling people to be involved with the children's ministry, but I mean, yesterday I'm I'm walking around and I'm looking at all of these uh, children's ministry volunteers that have come to meet in the children's department. It's just so encouraging to see how people rise up. I see all the people that are saying, "Listen, we're going to have these Wednesday night meals every Wednesday night. I want to be a part. I'm going to serve." And you know, everybody's saying, "Listen, not here's what I want to do," but they're saying, "Where do you need me?" Where do you need me? You know, uh, if you need me in first service, then I'll go to second service. If you need me to serve in second service, I'll go to first service or whatever it is. Just put me where you need me. That's that shows you what 
what God's doing. That, you know, if, if, if me and the other pastors had to guilt trip you into serving or, or, or beg you or, you know, carry on it, you know, then I wouldn't know. When we simply just say, here's what God's called us to do, and then people just start rising up to the moment, that's the Spirit of God working in us, and it's an indication that something big is coming. I'm telling you, God is, this is the message for us right now, that we need to really work over these next couple of weeks that before we come back together to rid our hearts of partiality. And we need to make sure that when we come back together, we are focused on the mission, that we see everything from the outsider, that when you, from the moment you pull into the parking lot, you're looking for people who are parking their car, who don't know where to go, who don't know where to bring their kids, who don't know which door to go in, who don't know where to sit, who don't know where to, you know, that we're constantly thinking of others. That, yeah, maybe, you know, that you would, you're more comfortable sitting on the end of the pew. But you also realize that you're blocking everybody from getting to the middle. And so you're going to move in so that it's there for guests to be able to sit there. That we're going to be just conscious about other people. That, you know, when we walk up to people, that we're, we're conscious of, we're, we're thinking of them. And we're saying, I know that this is a foreign place to you. And just because it's my family and my home and I'm, I'm more comfortable here than anywhere else, I have to remember what it feels like to be you. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. But if you show partiality, you see how serious God is about that? You commit sin. That it's sin. And you're convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever, verse 10, shall keep the whole law yet stumble at one point, he is guilty of all. See, God's saying when you show favoritism, when you have this grid of profiling people and you come to conclusions about people based on the way they look or what they have, you're breaking the number two law. Jesus said in the great commandment, that the whole law is wrapped up in love the, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. You're breaking that. You're not loving your neighbor as yourself. You're showing partiality. You're showing favoritism. Verse 11. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery and do not murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. It, now, I mean, wait a minute. You, what God's doing here is He's saying that we have adultery, we have murder, we have the things that we are quickest to jump on. That if if we're going to think, if if we start listing out, well, what are the what are the terrible sins? Adultery, murder. There, these are terrible sins. They're much worse than all these other sins. And God says, no. Partiality is right there in that conversation. Right in the same conversation. 
Verse 12, so speak and so do. Remember I said our words and our actions, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Act like one who knows that he's going to stand before the judge. This is what James is saying. James is saying he's talking as a pastor to people that he loves. And he's saying, listen, you're going to stand before the judge. Now you need to act as if you know that. Now, if you're going to stand before the judge, what is it that you better know? You better know what the judge's criteria are. In other words, if you're going to stand before a judge, when you walk into the courtroom, there's no question of who's in control. There's no question of who has the power. It's the person in the robe sitting up behind the, the desk. That's the person who's in control. And you're at the mercy of that person. That judge has authority over you. And what you need to know prior to going into that courtroom is what is the criteria that this judge is judging on. And so for me and you, in a secular sense, we need to know what the law is. The most important thing to know when you walk into a court of law is the law because that's what the judge is judging on. So if you're going to stand before the judge, the judge above all other judges, the judge who reigns over the universe, the highest judge that's ever existed, you better know what his criteria is. You better know what his standards are. If, if everyone in the church looks like me, we have a problem. Do you know why we have a problem? Because the judge has a problem with that. The judge does. An internal problem is going to lead to external problems. We're not going to accomplish what God's called us to accomplish in our community and in the world if we're not accomplishing it within these four walls. It's impossible to reach our community and not look like our community. How do you know that you've reached your community? You look like your community. So let me ask you a question. When you're out in the community, when you're standing in line and standing in line like I did yesterday for seemed like forever to get into Sam's, I was looking at the community around me and I was thinking about this. And I was looking at, you know, people with their arms are covered with tattoos and I was thinking, well, praise God, I've got brothers and sisters with tattoos, people with piercings praise god i got brothers and sisters with piercing i've got brothers and sisters of that look different that are shaped different that have different skin color that have different ethnic backgrounds that have different and here's the thing are we there no have we arrived no well you know how we'll know when we have is when we look like our community 
then we can say we've reached our community. And until then, we've got to keep striving. That, that's a reminder to us that we've still got some partiality that we need to kill, that we need to rid ourselves of. You see, the reality is, is that each of us is going to stand and give an account. And what's crazy about that is that even though we've spent most of our lives giving account on other people's lives, there's not going to be any discussion about other people when we stand before the judge. I'm going to stand and give an account for me, for my words, for my actions, for my grid, for my x-ray glasses, for my profiling. And you're going to give an account for yours. Look at verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Praise God, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? Mercy triumphs over judgment. So here's who we are. We've got to be the people of God that come when we come together. You see, we're not the church here. We're the church everywhere. You're the church right now. You're the church in your home. You're the church in your neighborhood. You're the church at your job. You're the church everywhere you go. And the church is, is a people of mercy because it's a people who've been shown mercy. It's a people who show mercy to others. Those who've been given mercy, give mercy. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they obtain mercy. They shall obtain mercy, the Bible says. Or what about Romans? The Bible says, well, God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, we're people who need mercy. We need mercy. So we give mercy. Thank God. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I thank God for you. I thank God for this family. I thank God for all the ways that we're mercy multipliers. But we haven't arrived. God has more for us. So let's work. Will you pray? Pray with me that God will, will rid our hearts of partiality so that we can be effective in going where God wants us to go. Because what's more exciting than being a part of what the living God of the universe is doing. And just like He's done it with us before, God, take us to higher heights. Take us to new places. Lead us, Lord. Lead us. May we reach this community. May we rid ourselves of partiality. May we remember in our hearts every day that we've never met a person more different from you than you are different from God. And He accepted you. See, you've never met a person. Whoever it is that is the most different from you, that still doesn't compare to how different you are from God. And yet He still accepted you. And He still accepted me. So let's be mercy multipliers. And let's, let's just move forward with enthusiasm 
as God seeks to rid our hearts of any partiality going forward, that we might be His people and reflect His purposes for His glory. Hey, have an amazing Mother's Day. Man, hug your mom, call your mom, love your mom, do something wonderful for the moms in your life. And I love you. I hope you have a great day. God bless you. Amen. You're dismissed.